0: This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco 89.5 FM. It's Arab Talk with Jess and Jamal. I'm Jess Nam. And
1: this is Jamal Dijani.
0: Jamal, this is uh, really a great show that we have uh, going on for you today. Um, we've got a lot of topics to cover regarding the Arab world, domestic politics, Palestine, but a big piece of news is that this is actually the 50th anniversary of one of the most tragic uh, moments in U.S. military history. Fifty years ago today, and really one of the catastrophes in the U.S. military, the USS Liberty was attacked by the Israeli military and uh, U.S. Navy personnel, officers, were killed by the Israeli military. It was really a tragic, tragic uh, historical moment, and tragically, not too many people know about this.
1: Uh, you're correct, Jess, and of course it's 50 years uh, since the 1967 Naxa, but today, June 8, and this is during Israel's so-called preemptive six-day war, between courts. We have to put that in quotes. You know, which was actually an act of aggression, not self de- defense, as the Israeli Hasbara uh, has been marketing it. You know, uh, on this day, 50 years ago, uh, the USS Liberty it's an inte- it's it's an American intelligence gathering ship that was in international waters and
0: that's important international waters
1: about 25.5 nautical miles northwest of Egypt's Sinai peninsula right was attacked by Israeli jets not once not once by the way so the first time and, and I should also say that the USS Liberty was flying uh, very visible American flags. Israel knew the, the ship's identity, its U.S. flag clearly visible, good weather conditions. This is summertime. This is in, in June was right. made it very easy to spot it. So Israeli warplanes circled overhead. This is according to eyewitness reports that it circled overhead before attacking. At times, low enough for you, as sailors, to wave to its pilots.
0: Wow!
1: They waved back before opening fire with rockets and machine guns against the lightly armed uh, vessel. It was, you know, it it was an intelligence ship. A second wave of planes used napalm, napalm, setting parts of the deck ablaze. Wow! Israeli attack boats struck the vessel with torpedoes. You see, because American media is not going to talk about this. No. U.S. media is not going to talk about this. Fox News is not going to talk about this today. CNN is not going to report on this today. And and, and so, so they struck it from the air. They struck it from the sea. Uh, the torpedoes that were, you know, this is after forensic, you know, um, examination, etc., uh, they discovered that there was a 40-foot-wide hole in its hull, wow. where it flooded the, the lower compartments, causing the ship to list to 10 degrees. It became defenseless, smoking, the hull. Uh, lo- it was lucky actually to avoid uh, sinking. Four other Israeli torpe- torpedoes missed uh, their target. Its warplanes strafed the Liberty at close range. The ship. The ship's radio frequencies were jammed to prevent a distress call for help. Wow! When, when it was finally able to communicate, it was too late. And I say uh, it was uh, too late because uh, after the end of the attack, you know, besides um, you know disabling this uh, ship, you have um, 34 American sailors lost their lives unbelievable and another 171 One hundred. were wounded
0: Jamal that's a that's a real tragedy and um there are so many tragedies in the story the the fact that a so-called ally you know the Israeli military and the Israeli government at the time chose to attack a US a defenseless US you know intelligence gathering ship thirty-four uh, military personnel you know brutally killed hundreds you know injured and the real tragedy even to this day jamal fifty years later you don't hear about this you don't hear about
1: it you have some of the survivors uh, fighting the battle uh, trying to go after the both uh, the department of defense and and, and, the and state of israel and well the us congress to acknowledge Just that this, even this acknowledge that, that this was not a mistake that was a deliberate attack and to have compensation for the families uh of of the victims and that was not a mistake and that was not as the israeli media t- uh, and government tries to market that it was attacked by arab countries in fact uh i've gathered few quotes uh, later on from different prime ministers about that about uh, the six-day war
0: yeah we'll get to that in a minute but you know about the USS Liberty The it's important for our listeners to know that the for a very long time Jamal the Israelis didn't even acknowledge that this this event even occurred so they denied that it even occurred the thing that happened subsequent to the denial is they said okay yes it occurred but we didn't know what kind of ship it was. We thought we were under attack. <laughs> we did this in self-defense. That's the Israeli Hasbara analysis. Which is all
1: nonsense. Of course it's nonsense. It's all nonsense. And, and like, like I've nonsense. said,
0: even, even the whole
1: idea behind the six-day war, that it was a preemptive strike, it wasn't the case. Israel has been planning for several months and 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 waiting for an excuse and waiting for a time the right time to attack Egypt and of course later on Syria Jordan and and so on and there were statements that were issued later on from different uh, Israeli uh, you know prime ministers or people who um, were in the defense forces the Israeli forces military forces and became later on prime ministers for example uh, the future prime minister is rabin told the french the french newspaper le monde and this is a quote from him i do not believe nasser wanted war the two divisions which he sent into sinai on may 14 would not have been enough to unleash an offensive against israel he knew and we knew it he knew it and we of course, knew
0: it but- but of course, everybody knew it. And then, and then in
1: 1978, uh, the Israeli Air Force Commander General Mordechai Hod said, 16 years of planning had gone into those initial 80 minutes. We lived with the plan. We slept on the plan. We ate the plan constantly, constantly. We perfected it. So, and then you go on. They have also bar Barlev you know he also said we were not threatened with genocide and on the eve of the six-day war and we had never thought of such a possibility
0: so the 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 disinformation the hype the, the kind of marketing if you will Jamal of the six-day war again is the same narrative that we've heard from 1948 to 1967 and until now which is poor little Israel we were under attack this, we, we had to take steps to de- defend ourselves, and we did what we could to just defend ourselves. The real story that we're, we we have been hearing for years, now 50 years, and is now finally finding its way in these small ways uh, in, in, I won't even say the mainstream media, but in some media, is that this was a calculated plan of attack by the Israeli military to take more land to take the West Bank in Gaza, to basically destroy what they could of whatever, you know, uh, ineffective Arab armies there, there were in Egypt. I mean, the, we have to admit this, Jamal. These were not great Arab armies no, by any stretch of and, the imagination. And the
1: main issue, you know, of course, uh, the biggest issue for the Palestinians is the Nakba and then, uh, the Naxa, but for this country and its leadership, and I'm, I'm talking about leaders going as, as way back to 1967. Right. No one has taken accountability, and they really brushed it off as ra- nothing, right under the rug. The rug, and pretended, you know, if, if this happened, I mean, we're talking about now. All the rhetoric uh, vis-à-vis, you know, Iran, Syria, North Korea, etc. But if imagine, imagine if it was any country uh, attacking, that, a US, a, attacking a U.S. attacking a
0: U.S. ship yeah, right now. Yeah. Imagine. Imagine that. What, what would happen? Exactly. What do you think would happen?
1: You know, well, you'll have a full-scale invasion and so forth. But you know, like I said, in fact, they uh, there is a major cover-up, and it's a shame that those sailors are not remembered Uh, like today it's 50 years no one talks about them no one remembers them we're uh, going to shift shift gears right here because there are a lot of things to talk about we have
0: a lot to talk about and
1: I want to talk a little bit about this crisis which one? Which we, many crises. <laughs> but this crisis. Which one? Uh, that we started talking about it last week oh, between right. Saudi Arabia and Qatar.
0: Yeah, it's very interesting. And
1: by the way, Qatar is not Qatar, and it is not Qatar, and it is not Qatar, like how uh, Wolf, some.
0: Well, Wolf Blitzer ha, calls it Qatar. That, right, Qatar cutter C U T T E R.
1: But uh, this is going out of uh, control. It's been now over a week and uh, saudi arabia uh, has issued uh, a, a list the, the list is getting um, longer it is and of demands uh, from qatar to meet uh, before you know they normalize the relations and before they end their uh, basically siege uh, but
0: it's an economic and military and political Boycott in siege of of Qatar. So it is. You know, is. the flights are flights are flights are being. Uh, you can't fly from Qatar to to Saudi Arabia right now. Um, they've cut. They pull the ambassadors. There there has been um, a real. I mean, you know, people kind of are minimizing this. I think in the West, Jamal, because this is truly a crisis in the Gulf right now. It is. So anyway,
1: let's talk a little bit about those demands. The list of demands. Yeah, that what are they the have. demands? So of course they have uh extensive list of demands one of them uh, asking Qatar to cut off all its links with Iran and expel resident members of uh Hamas members of Hamas living there so and, the saudis are
0: asking and, the Qataris and any to get rid any
1: of the- any members of the Muslim Brotherhood uh the other demand is to curb the freedom of Al Jazeera, you know, right. That's the, that's what made what this is what put Qatar on, on the, the map, map on, right. on the international. So, so they're asking them to basically almost like turn this, the lights off there on, on Al Jazeera. Exactly. You know, if not shutting it down, they wanted to follow. Uh, ex- uh, extreme uh, censorship and uh, basically operate like uh, Saudi TV, and uh, they're accusing it of uh, dealing with terrorists. They're accusing, of course, uh, not just dealing, uh, Aj- but fi- financing. Well, and and they they use uh, Donald Trump's uh, reference. Uh, They call it fake news. So Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera is fake news. (laughs) Uh, You know this is how, and they say it's interfering in uh, foreign countries' affairs, and that the emir should stop or cease funding, funding it. And you know, if the emir stops funding Al Jazeera, Al Jazeera will shut down tomorrow. So, uh, so those are some some of the demands uh, that they have, and as you are aware of, uh, they've canceled all flights of uh, Qatari Airways, which is my favorite airlines. I, oh, I, I got me too to fly it a couple of times, and now you can't actually. Uh, I don't know how you know people. Uh, in fact, they've left Qatari uh, citizens stranded in the UAE.
0: Right. Well,
1: it's unable to return home. It's,
0: it's, ca- it's, it's really a huge crisis because it's not only Saudi Arabia, Jamal, it's it's the Emirates, so it's the United Arab Emirates, Abu Dhabi, Dubai uh, are joining the Saudi call. It's, of all people, it's, uh, it's uh, Abdel Fattah al-Sisi and Egypt and the Egyptian government have joined this call to boycott and isolate uh, Qatar. Bahrain, Yemen. and I think there's there's a couple of others uh, in there too that have joined joined this call. I mean, on the one hand it's not a lot of it's not a lot of countries, but on the other hand it's enough people, uh, it's enough countries where the ambassadors have been pulled and where economic ties are threatened, that it's really a crisis for the Qataris right now. Now, the ironic thing, Jamal, as we we spoke about last week, to go against the Amir of Qatar and the Qataris at this point is 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 goes against what happened under the Barack Obama administration, who called upon the Emir of Qatar and the Qataris to handle a lot of high level strategic negotiations. For example, when they wanted to uh, exchange uh, to get Bo Bergdahl back from the Taliban and the Taliban that were in Guantanamo had to be sent somewhere, they sent six Taliban Guantanamo detainees to Qatar in exchange for Bo Bergdahl. When Barack Obama wanted to negotiate with Hamas, when there was ever humanitarian efforts that needed to be carried out in many parts of the world, the United States didn't go to Saudi Arabia. They went to the Qataris, who are known for being open-minded, thoughtful, and being able to negotiate things that uh, other countries and other uh, um, other diplomats were unable to do. All of a sudden now, New administration in Washington, sword dance with uh, Donald Trump in Riyadh, and now the Qatari and the Qatari government and the emir and the royal family. Qatar is in real danger. They're in danger of losing the World Cup for, for 2022 now, Jamal. I mean, it's a real crisis now. It is. And, I mean... We've
1: listed the the list of demands right. that the Saudis... Uh,
0: Which are outrageous. Uh,
1: well, I mean, uh, they're entitled to, to put their demands, but do we actually believe that this is or those were the main reason for this uh, relationship all. to go sour? No, not at all. So what do you think, what do you think in your mind, the main reason for this?
0: Well, I think there's a lot of reasons. I think the Saudis really... Um, are trying to, and we, we spoke about this last week. The Saudis are trying to reestablish themselves as the big, as the big, and I won't say the word on the air that I want to say, but the big brother, the big player on the, on the block in the Arab world. Under the Obama administration, actually, you know, the largest U.S. Uh, military base in the whole region is in Qatar. And they have 10,000 troops. They have, it's a huge, de, uh, you know, a deployment center. It's, it's a main hub for the U.S. military. The, under the Obama administration, Qatar got a lot more love. There's a lot of isolation and contention between the Saudis and uh, the U.S. under Obama. And now what the Saudis are doing with Donald Trump, they want to reestablish themselves as the big, the big, uh, big man on campus, the big, you know, uh, uh, the big country on the, on the campus of the world stage. That's number one. Number two. You know, militarily, they, they, they scored this, you know, $400 to $400 billion deal with the United States and the Trump administration. So it's basically exercising its strategic influence in the region, number one. Number two, reestablishing itself in terms of being the major, you know, kind of uh, strategic foil, if you will, against Iran. And the third item, I would say, Jamal, which is really hard for me to say, which is? Which is the Saudis are in bed with the Israelis. And um, I think that really plays into it. You know, Saudi Arabia and Israel have a strategic pack that if Iran gets involved in any kind of military activity that is really significant, the Saudis have agreed in principle to let the Israeli military fly over Saudi airspace to bomb Iran. I mean, we're, we're talking about really problematic dip- diplomatic uh, changes and here. this wouldn't be
1: by the way this wouldn't be uh, the only incident if uh, should this happen because right. if you remember when Israel bombed uh, Iraq's nuclear reactor
0: that's right, that's right. Uh, Israeli
1: jets flew over Saudi Arabia and I should remind our listeners, that this is when Saudi Arabia had AWACS planes. In <laughs> fact, it was the only country in the Middle East to have AWACS right. ahead of Israel. And That's Ronald right. Reagan, uh, they tried to block it. APAC and, and its surrogates uh, at, at Congress tried to block that. And Ronald Reagan fought hard to sell AWACS to That's right. the AWACS to Saudi Arabia. That's right. So they've had the AWACS and yet they couldn't detect the israeli that jets part, yeah. going and in coming and coming back no one saw them
0: nobody saw them
1: so this collaboration
0: it is a collaboration
1: has existed
0: for a long time for
1: a, for a, for a long time but also i want to i want to also uh you know uh, bring in the oil or gas in the case of qatar the oil factor because it always goes back or comes back to the issue of oil gas uh, yes. yes, and it does. and uh, you know Qatar is a major producer and Iran of gas both of them well
0: li- liquid natural gas that's true its so how much, much
1: how much do you think that plays in no in i
0: think that's a huge play in this turmoil because you know when the price of oil tanked and the saudi government and the emirates had to and uh, you know, had to basically redo their their budgets and a lot of things got slashed. Uh, uh, The Qatari budget didn't suffer as much as the Saudi uh, and the Venezuelan and the other OPEC countries didn't suffer as much because Qatar is they're They're leveraged and they develop much more on the natural gas side rather than the crude side and natural gas the price of natural gas Jamal hasn't fluctuated as much as the crude prices so actually qatar financially is in a better position than than the other you know the other opec countries it's kind of interesting you're
1: listening to arab talk radio on kpoo 89.5 fm san francisco We have a lot of topics to talk about uh, today. Uh, We uh, talked about, of course, reminding our listeners about this is the 50th today, June 8th, the 50th anniversary of Israel's infamous attack on the USS Liberty. And, of course, uh, this uh, ongoing problem uh, with between Saudi Arabia and, and Qatar, i uh, I want to also uh, talk about something very timely and something that has been covered all over the news today, which is uh, the most I think important uh, hearing now we are witnessing during the Trump administration, which is the uh, the extraordinary uh, testimony by the former FBI director comey that 's right uh, today i don 't know if you watch it live, but i 've spent this morning. Watching it, and then later on, we're going to talk to a Palestinian uh, director and a filmmaker. So that's why we are not even taking a lot of uh, breaks. yes. Uh, right. Just, but uh, today, uh, fired FBI director James Comey's testimony to the Senate Intelligence Committee about his conversations with President Trump on Russia can be summed up in in one word. I, I for me
0: well I have one word what's your one word
1: liar I was gonna say,
0: that's <laughs> I the mean, word I was going to I mean
1: I mean not him I'm way. not saying he is lying no. but he directly and indirectly called the president of the United
0: States a liar Jamal he he called Donald Trump a liar five times so all these I mean, directly not only that's not even counting the indirect references he basically said what Donald Trump said about me and the FBI was a lie. He, he basically said And directly and, said. and he said, then the other
1: thing he said that he really did not trust his president. I mean, this is the director of the FBI saying when he was asked why was he taking these intricate notes right. and keeping record of the conversation, he said
0: because <laughs> He's gonna lie.
1: Uh, he was going maybe he'll lie about about my meeting. So so there were several takeaways from that. One like I said, the whole conversation can be summed up by Comey saying that Donald Trump is a liar and I don't trust and him. And I don't trust him. He said that he was pretty sure just that Trump inappropriately interfered in the investigation.
0: Well, with with, Finn. with uh, you know, yeah,
1: right. He said that in 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 uh, very clear terms. He said that, and like I said, Comey thinks the president is a liar. And I'm I was looking at some of the quotes um, where he said it in in many of the uh, the occasions. He one of the courts he said, "I was honestly concerned he might lie." about the nature of our meeting. I mean, imagine, we're not talking about two schoolmates here, Jess. We're no. talking about the director of the FBI and the president meeting with the president of the United States and saying to Congress, I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting.
0: Unbelievable. No, it's unbelievable. I would say two things. It's unbelievable and believable at the same time, because we're witness what we're witnessing now, Jamal, is a chief executive, a president of the United States who will lie at at the drop of a hat, who will dissemble, who will create, you know, alternative facts about the world and about the universe and basically will say anything that he freely associates about that that will contradict any kind of reality. It's, it's believable and it's unbelievable at the same time, but what I think was really the big um, message here is that we know from the Nixon times that you have the crime and the cover-up, right? So the crime here could be lots of different things. It could be collusion with the Russians. It could be lying. It could be all these things. But the, the thing that took down Nixon, if you recall, was the fact that he tried to cover it up. And what's really stunning about the testimony of uh, former FBI Director Comey is he's pointing out a pattern of a cover-up, not only with the President of the United States, but of all his minions around him. Cover-up with the President, uh, who's covering up. The, the Vice President, his trusted advisor, uh, and son-in-law, Jared Kushner, um, you know, Mike Flynn. The list goes on. His attorneys, his inner circle, it appears. And this is what Comey was talking about, Jamal. All appear, you know, kind of has it smells and it looks and it tastes like a duck. Looks like they're covering up something. Having to do with Russia
1: and the uh, the the other way. Uh, by the way, uh, why did wh- why did uh, Comey uh, when he he was asked why he's speaking about this? His answer was uh, the way Trump handled his firing is what oh, prompted him to to speak uh, about uh, about this topic. And of course, uh, it, so, so to me know. it seemed everyone on the panel, even the ones who were against. Uh, you know, the Republicans who were on the side of the president, they seem to be sure uh, that Comey's firing is the key to what the president uh, did wrong.
0: Well, look at look at it this way, Jamal. If I work for you and I report to you and you pull me into a private meeting and you ask everybody else to leave and you say, listen, I really hope that you can fix this illegal thing. <laughs> You can drop the investigation, and I hope you can fix this thing. And you do that not just once, not just twice, but three times, and you don't do and I don't do it, and then you fire me. Is there any other common sense, reasonable conclusion other than you were trying to strong-arm me to uh, fire some, you know, to do something illegal, and when I didn't do it, you fired me? I've I've been noticing that uh,
1: our phone uh, has been ringing off uh, the hook hook. Uh, and I'm just telling our uh, listeners, those who are uh, listening to us on KPOO, Uh, 89.5 FM San Francisco use our uh, uh, Facebook uh, broadcast to ask uh, questions or or email or Twitter because we can't take all your uh, calls uh, today we have a very tight uh, schedule and I saw also there was a question from uh, Rami Mayo from Australia what's the name of the Palestinian film uh, director uh, he's asking this and this is going to be on our next uh, segment okay. Jess and I hope uh, uh, that we will be able to actually loop the conversation because we're going to have a, a phone conversation with the director but the film is called the documentary it's called Tantura and uh, by uh, Hala Gabriel and Talal Jabari and Talal Jabari will be joining us by phone to talk about this film so i um, I hope I'm, I'm trying to respond to many of your questions uh, both uh, online but uh, the, I don't know if you want to take any of the calls just well,
0: we we are we're really packed today Jamal it's unlikely that we'll be able to take uh, some calls but I, I want to say something else that I you know, I've predicted a lot of these things so far, so I, I want to throw out another prediction here. Okay, go ahead. Let's let's put a wager here and folks uh, who well, are following a co- us. A couple of them are easy wagers, and the, the easy wager here is that the Trump legislative agenda for the next four years is dead. So whether or not it's the Affordable Care Act or the American you know, health care, affordable health care act, whatever the heck they're spinning it as, whether it's tax reform, whether it's infrastructure, because of the Comey testimony, I think Trump's legislative agenda is done. That, that will, you know, the promise of getting things done in Washington and draining the swamp, it's over. This is gonna suck all of the air, time, and energy out of the presidency. He'll only be able to issue executive orders, and nothing will get done second prediction I really really believe at the center of all of this is Jared Kushner that the smoking gun because there's a lot of smoke out there well with all that smoke we haven't been seeing him lately we haven't seen him for two weeks Jamal ever since it was reported that Jared Kushner had meetings with the Russian ambassador which he didn't disclose on his clearance form and he had another meeting with this uh, so-called uh, bank president, you know, the, the, this bank in, that Putin uses basically to, you know, uh, launder money and, you know, basically pay off people and things like that. It's not really a bank. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's a uh, financial institution that Putin uses to basically destabilize other countries that Jared Kushner had a, had a meeting with this banker, too, Gorbarov or Gorbrov. That The problem with this is that we know Jared Kushner, for example, has properties in Manhattan, Jamal, that are so far underwater that no legitimate bank will give him any more money. So It looks bad, it smells bad, Jared Kushner is quiet again. I have a sneaking suspicion that the center of all this Russian craziness, I think we're going to find Jared Kushner. Well, I think
1: it's very important to find uh, or to talk about the connection between Jared Kushner, uh, Mr. Trump's son-in-law, and senior advisor, and his relationship, and his uh, family's business with the With the Russians, yeah. I think it's very important to talk about the Russian bank which is uh the v e b i don't know if I can pronounce it correctly but it's Vene- bank uh, that's that's the i think the name of it or v e p In December, basically before the Trump administration took office,
0: after they had won,
1: after they had won, and the purpose of the meeting, the purpose of the meeting remains unclear. Uh, Was it related to some diplomatic issues, uh, as the White House has suggested? Does that make any sense? Or was it about Trump or Kushner family enterprises? We don't know.
0: Jamal, do you believe? Was the meeting legal? Yeah. You but, know, but do you really believe Jared Kushner is talking to this fake banker? You know what they said to see if they could work out a back channel on Syria. But but look at the funny thing here. That? Look at the, you, you know you dig, you dig
1: you dig you re, you dig deeper into it and the bank executive I don't know if he's he, he's, he's, he's he's the president is the, the president, the president or they referred to him as the bank ex- executive Mr. Kushner met with last December Sergey Gorkov Gorkov it, is a graduate of the Russian Foreign Intelligence Service Academy. Imagine like, like you know, you go now and meet with uh, the the president of Citibank or the president of Wells Fargo right here in San Francisco. Oh and by, by the by the way
0: from the CIA
1: Yeah I am a graduate of the CIA Academy or the I mean this is come on now. Why would you have a graduate of basically the KGB. You know, he's a representative of the KGB in a bank in New York doing what? So this is this is very important. This is maybe gives you a glimpse on how the Russians kind of operate. Well, we know how the Russians But uh, very important that uh, this bank, VEB, of course, it's regularly used by the Kremlin to finance. Politically important projects, including some of the infrastructure of the Sochi Olympics in 2014, which cost the Russian government a total of 50 billion dollars. Also, VEB bailed out Ukrainian banks after the 2008 global financial crisis and purchased two failing steel plants in the Ukraine.
0: That's
1: right. It is an arm of the Russian government to meddle in other countries affairs
0: it's 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 not just the Russian government Jamal it's an arm of the Russian intelligence service and it just happens to exercise its um, its intelligence uh, work under the cover of being a bank that that's what it is it buys people off it launders money Um, people the real story behind the Kushner Empire and and the trump empire you're going to see properties that are underwater that no us bank will lend to to save and you're going to be finding out lots more information about you know this kind of quid pro quo or an attempt to have russian oligarchs funnel money somehow to the Kushner industries or some someone in the in the Trump family of businesses and i that's my prediction that's where i think the smoking gun is going to lead all of us Jamal we're going to have to take a little break unfortunately
1: we're going to take a short musical break and um, the facebook live will continue uh, the break will put everybody listening to us on uh, kpo on hold while we call Uh, this Palestinian uh, Talal Jaabari, producer of uh, the new documentary they're working on, Tantura, And we hope that we can loop the conversation. uh, If we put it on the speaker, maybe our listeners on Facebook can can listen to the conversation uh, just. So stay tuned. This is Arab Talk on KPOO San Francisco.
0: All right. Welcome back to Arab Talk on KPOO, San Francisco, 89.5 FM. This is Arab Talk with Justin Jamal.
1: We are very happy to have uh, with us by phone Talal Jabari. Talal is a filmmaker, and he's going to talk to us about the latest uh, film he has been working on, uh, which is called Tantura, which I understand Tantura is a beautiful fishing village located on the shore of the Mediterranean Sea in the north of what was Palestine until 1948. Welcome to Arab Talk, Talal. Thank you. Thank you for having me on here.
0: No, we're very happy to have you today, Talal. Tell us a little bit about your idea for this uh, documentary.
2: At this point, it's more than an idea. Um, We, uh, the director, Hela Gabriel, started shooting this film about ten years ago. She is a refugee um descendant from the original inhabitant of uh of Tantura. Her father was a resident of Tontura, um, who ended up uh in Syria and then by chance they were able to immigrate to the US. So this is her journey of discovery of where she's actually from. And she started this ten years ago, um, talking to eyewitnesses of, of what happened, um the whole expulsion process the the from the moment um, the uh, soldiers came in to the moment the uh, the, the men were carted off to uh, internment camps um, to the moment the women were were taken to another town and then eventually expelled to the West Bank, which was then under Jordan. Um, and, uh, and this is, this is a process that she started 10 years ago, and, uh, and we picked up about a, 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 year and a half ago as well. Um, we went and spoke to their descendants, the second generation, um, who were once again forcibly removed from the refugee camps in Syria, where they all ended up. Um, so we spoke to their, to, to the original refugees, children, and nephews, and, and brought the, uh from full circle to where it is today
1: so uh, my understanding uh, Hala Gabriel the uh, the films uh, director herself uh, she's a Palestinian refugee uh, from Syria right
2: absolutely so um, so her father was a resident of Plantura he was 15 years old um, when uh, the the village was taken over and and he was put into one of these prison camps um, for, for about two years before um, he was expelled as well, um, and they all all the residents of Tantura essentially ended up in syria um, and that's where she was born um, as a refugee. Uh, they were more fortunate than others in the fact that they were able to uh, emigrate to the u s when she was a child um, but yes she's a she's a refugee from Syria
0: okay, tell us a little bit uh, Talal about the about the film and um, I mean the fact that Tantura is a village uh, on the Mediterranean already speaks volumes for anybody who's from Palestine. I mean that's an absolutely glorious amazing uh, place to uh, to live and to grow up and tell us a little bit about Tantura and the film I
2: think, I think Tantura as a village um, is, is even more special than, than what, what people associate with the Mediterranean because um, the village of Tantura, has these three islands, um, small small islets off the off the coast. It's a it's a beautiful coast until today. I mean, it's um, you know now Israeli tourists go to it on a regular basis. But it, it, it was it was a beautiful uh, Mediterranean village. It Had about fifteen hundred Palestinians living in it, um, and these Palestinians essentially. I um, had a very good relationship with the closest uh, Jewish settlement of the time before the state of Israel. Um, it was called Zichron Yaakov. Um, in Arabic, uh, it was called Zammarin. They had a very good relationship with them, um, but unfortunately that didn't protect them from, from uh, the cleansing process. Um, as I say, you know, it's uh, about 1,500 uh, residents, and, and they all ended up uh, being being expelled.
0: And where did they go in Syria, Yarmouk. by the where, where in Syria did they go to? Um,
2: a, a very large part of them ended up in the Yarmouk refugee camp.
0: Yarmouk, yeah. And,
2: yeah, this is why we went back to them, because we've all seen what's happened to the Yarmouk refugee camp, um, you know, during the Syrian war uh, and, and the results of that. So we felt it was very important to go and say, look, these guys are in the Ermouk refugee, uh, refugee camp. They've now been um, forced out of there because of the war there. This would not have happened um, if they were weren't forced out of their home in the first place in Pontoura.
1: So uh, they've been—they uh, are actually twice the refugees, right? Many of them now probably are spread all over uh, different places: Lebanon, Europe, uh, Jordan, Greece, Greece. That's, that's,
2: Absolutely, we we went and caught up with some of them in refugee camps in in Lebanon, and they were put into um, existing pre-existing Palestinian refugee camps. The, for, the, most of the Palestinians were, um, and, but living in you know abysmal situations. I mean, we went into one house, um, no windows, um, pots and pans that they uh, collected off the of the rubbish dump. Um, and just cleaned really well, and, uh, you know, and, and we're relying on donations. Um, and just when we thought we saw the worst, uh, we went and filmed in the refugee camps in Syria, in uh, Greece and the uh, temporary refugee camps there. And, you know, it, it was heartbreaking for us to see, you know, five, six-year-old children um, wanting to show us their house. Uh, meaning the tent that they had been living in for for the last month or two, uh, that they now considered home. Um, so it was uh, it was it was a painful uh, journey for us as well, just just to see where these Palestinians had ended up. Uh, you know, with with the rest of the Syrians, but uh, but because this film concentrates mainly on the Palestinians that were coming from Syria.
1: So uh, this film is still a work in progress, right? Uh, and uh, I know uh, you have a lot of uh, parts of the film to complete. Uh, basically, where where can people learn about the film, and how can they help you?
2: Absolutely, we we right now have a seventy-minute rough cut, um, which means this is going to be a very solid feature film, um, and we're ready to take it to the festivals. Uh, but before then, we have um, a few a few gaps. And those gaps are going to be filled by recreating the scenes um, of where these individuals were, uh, the Palestinians, when uh, certain things happened. So when the army came in, when uh, they got expelled, when they were in prison camps, the the personal stories we need to illustrate in, in a way that we can't do um, by filming and just by having somebody uh, talk at the camera.
0: Where can people go to get where, that information? To learn.
2: Right. So, so we have a fundraising campaign now on Kickstarter.com. Um, so, if, uh, you know, if, if you're generous listeners, um, go to Kickstarter.com and enter the word plantura, Tantura, T-A-N-T-U-R-A. Um, they'll get to our crowdfunding campaign. Uh, we're trying to raise $55,000, and we have about 27 days left um, to uh, raise about 40,000 of that $55,000. Uh, uh, and yeah, we're very hopeful and, and optimistic.
0: Talal, um, we we are really hoping that you can uh, you can get that funding uh, secured for yourself and and the team because this uh, sounds like it's an incredible story that needs to be told. And it's one of those hidden stories uh, after the, the the ethnic cleansing in 1948 that occurred that we don't hear about. I wonder when you guys went back to Tentura to to um, film. What is the Palestinian population like now in Tentura, if if it even exists at all now? Does it does it still exist? No,
2: no. The Palestinian population in Tentura now is zero. That's zero. Um, where no. the village exists, there are tourist uh, cabanas. Um, so yeah, there are no uh, no Palestinians I All that remains now, um, and you'll see this image uh, once the film is out. All that remains now is is a house built by Hala's great grandfather. Wow, uh, that's all from that Tura.
1: Well, uh, Talal, we wish you the best of luck, and we uh, uh, call on our listeners to. Uh, Go and actually go to Kickstarter and uh,
0: type in Tantura. Pa-
1: type in Tantura. They have a page uh, that gives you all the information about this project, about the the documentary. What is the film uh, about? Uh, what uh, the producers have done uh, th- this far, and how can you help there? And we hope that you complete your film uh, on time, and maybe even have you right here in San Francisco at the Arab Film Festival uh, this is an annual event uh, when does it happen uh, october in, i don't know maybe you will be this
0: october but maybe inshallah the october after right the october after
2: uh, it's, it's very important for us to launch it um, for 2018 because that's the uh, 70th year um, anniversary of the nakba yeah um so so this is adds the, add the pressure to uh, to the need to raise these funds.
1: Well, uh, we wish you the best of luck, uh, Talam. Hopefully we can uh, uh, keep track of your progress and maybe give us a holler uh, as you advance further and we'll bring you back yeah, on we'll the show. Yeah, we'll
2: bring you back. All right. Thank you very much.
1: All right. Uh, we're coming to an end to another Arab talk on KPOO. San Francisco. This is 89.5 FM.